Hello, kind listeners. Thank you for opening up this episode of Concessions. This week, we're completing our Nicholas Rogue doubleheader to kick off our second season with his high-minded horror opus, Don't Look Now. In the earliest days of the podcast, when Dan and I were exploring movies that we loved but that the other person hadn't seen, we independently arrived at two of this director's films and were able to share them with each other. I'd never heard of Walkabout before, and I was absolutely gobsmacked at how much I really enjoyed it. In fact, now I think I rate it right alongside Don't Look Now as another near-perfect film by Rogue. Delighted as I was to learn that Dan had never seen Don't Look Now, we added it to the schedule, and now I'm so happy to get to share that conversation with all of you. If you're a fan of Concessions, please hit that follow button and also give us a rating. You can also find us online. I'm on threads at Jared Concessions. Dan is on Twitter at Dan Concedes. Now, join us in gross, grimy, spooky Venice, Italy, as we consider the bigger picture around Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Wait, where have I heard that before? Heard what? I don't... Did you hear something? The thing... The thing that that you just said. I, I didn't hear anything. Maybe your audio's messed up. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway. anyway. Whoa. <laughs> Trippy. Hey, Dan, what are you drinking? So, which will make sense to our audience as we get further in the episode, I'm drinking a nice Italian red wine oh. in honor of today's episode. It's, wow. a, it's a nice little Pinot, even though Pinots, I believe, are Italian in origin. I made sure that the, uh, the old label said... Uh, or no, yeah, it is Italian. Yeah, no, so we're Italian. We're good. I don't know why I'm getting my languages all screwed up. French, Italian, it's all wine. But yeah, nice Italian red for a movie about Italy and the color red. Oh, yeah, very, very red. I've got uh, something less Italian and less red. This is a Lucille IPA from Georgetown Brewing here in lovely Seattle. If you've been painstakingly keeping track of all the beers I've uh, had to drink on concessions... You might know that I usually don't go for an IPA like very often, but my dear wife got this for me today. She let me take a nap while she went to the store because she knew I damn well needed it oh, after the week hard. that I've had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fitting for a, a nice uh, tale of marriage that we're going to be jumping into as well. Just a sweet little romance. Oh my gosh. This is such a movie about just a, a Functioning marriage with not a trouble in the world. <laughs> so, Jared, what, uh, anything that you, you watched? Did you do anything in the last week or consume anything? Or did you just sit in a corner and stare at a wall and cry or anything of that nature? Oh, my good God, did I watch a good movie this week. <laughs> so, I traveled to one Chicago, Illinois. Nice place. I'm sure you've been there once or twice, eh, Danny boy? <laughs> and uh, I 
just so happened to be traveling there for work. But whilst I was traveling there for work, the Chicago International Film Festival just happened to be occurring. And it's funny, the locals were calling it SIF, but we all know that SIF is the Seattle International Film Festival. So henceforth, I shall refer to the Chicago International Film Festival by its proper name of CHIF. CHIF! And at CHIF, I only saw one movie because I was, I was there in the city to work. And what a movie. So the movie was Late Night with the Devil, starring David Dastmelchian. And he is a Chicago boy, born and raised. And the movie takes place in Chicago. And this was sort of homecoming for him. You know, David Dasmalchian, Google him real quick. If you don't know his name, you'll know him as, oh, yeah, he's that guy that's in everything. <laughs> and, I mean, he's in everything. He's in Ant-Man. He's in The Dark Knight. He's in Dune. He's in Oppenheimer. He's in The Suicide Squad. Uh, many other films. He was just in Boogeyman. And usually he's the creepy supporting character, slightly you know, off kilter villain. Like an eccentric, yeah. An eccentric. Yeah, he was in Prisoners. Wonderful in Prisoners. Oh, oh my yeah. God. That. In this movie, he is the the lead. And he is like a very charismatic lead uh, with some skeletons, certainly. But it was so awesome seeing him in a lead role. And, and he was there doing a Q&A afterwards, you know, introducing the movie at the top. And he was just so, he was so gracious. I mean, he seemed so happy to be there and, you know, every time he got really big applause, he would cry a little bit. Mm. He swore a lot, which ingratiates a person to me like immediately. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was it was damn good. It's a movie where, and this is some a quality in a movie that that Dan and I have spoken about on the show before. Where even though this is a movie that is like genuinely frightening here and there, uh, it's also really funny, like the whole time, like like gut busting funny. But even so. It never stops being funny, but often it's also like actually scary here and there. Um, and it does another thing that Dan and I have also talked about on this show where the movie trains you to be afraid of it. So it's got, uh, without revealing really much of anything, it, it has a mechanism where a certain pattern gets repeated throughout the movie. And every time it's about to kind of go into the next kind of segment, you know it's going to get progressively more terrifying. And it always does. And by the end, I was just like, very, very on edge, and I can't wait for you to see it, Dan. Late Night with the Devil. Oh yeah, you think uh, is this going to be one coming up for the end of the year? I would assume it's going to be on Shutter sooner rather than later. But I got to say, if there's any chance of seeing it in the theater, mm. please don't miss out on that. Um, I mean, I happen to have the most absolute perfect storm of theater experiences for this movie. Just the most hyped crowd possible, you know. One of the very first audiences to see it in the star's hometown with him present. But if you do have a chance to see it in the movie theater, very, very crowd pleasing, very crowd involved type of movie for sure. Well, I'm sold. I'll be buying my first ticket next chance I can get. So for me, I also uh, stick into October and uh, our good spooks. I've been trying to check off like throughout October. I try and check off a couple of like quote unquote pillars um, and this last week I watched a Japanese film from the sixties called Kwaidan, which translates pretty much directly to like an antiquated word for ghost stories. And that's very appropriate where it feels like if you've ever, you know, uh, picked up like a classic, 
collection of folklores, myths, fairy tales from a different culture that you have like no context for, um, which I like doing every once in a while because you get this combination of like what's particular to that culture and their symbols and you can kind of see the the origins of where they come from so that when you're seeing, I don't know, like if you picked up a, a book on Japanese folklore, maybe you could learn more about the ring and where that uh, that symbology comes from. But then at the same time, you see that like a lot of these legends and like stories have been t- passed down orally and then eventually put to paper and then the cinema at some point, like they all kind of have a lot of similar morals, values, lessons that they're teaching. That's pretty universal to the human experience. Um, and Quidon has that in spades. It's uh, actually technically an anthology film, much like a collection of myths or legends would be a collection of stories. Um, but they they all have that like slightly surreal feel or that like epic feel that um, a legend would have where everything's not quite grounded even though it's talking about very real like real life situations and very like uh things that like your average peasant or something would understand when the story is being passed among from like father to son or mother to daughter or something like that and yeah all four of these stories are gorgeously crafted um they are i mean they're they're not like like i'm like shaking my bones or something like that but um they're they're just so like lovingly constructed kind of in a theatrical way, almost like the colors are all dialed up a little uh, off kilter and the sets are all clearly artificial, but that only heightens like the, the emotional truth behind what they're trying to get at. And I understand why I think when I told you that I was watching, it's like, Oh, Ari Aster says this is one of the most beautiful horror films ever seen or ever made. And I'm like, yeah, uh, I get why that would get thrown on this list. So yeah, uh, I think it's like 1965's Kwai Don. Um, recommend it. Uh, it is three hours long. Pers- uh, admittedly, I did cut it where I watched the first story of the anthology and then went to bed. And then the next day I finished it off. And that, that was a totally fine way to go through it. I would say acceptable. I know I gave you a lot of shit when you watch a movie in multiple sittings. Just this past week, I was like, Dan, you can't watch Don't Look Now in multiple sittings it's not two episodes of a television show it's a movie and uh in this particular movie though there is like a certain just payoff in the ending that would be extremely diminished without the momentum of the runway up to it i would say and this movie that we're watching this week don't look now actually happens to be uh, another movie that ari aster has said is beautiful and a, a major inspiration on his work and uh, I can definitely see that. Um, Don't Look Now is sort of A24 elevated horror 50 years before that became like such a common way to refer to just a very good horror movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. You made me watch another av- like high minded horror film on that's a metaphor for grief. Ugh. Yeah. Dan hates that sort of thing. <laughs> so, OK, we are watching Don't Look Now or... What I would argue is the superior title, the Italian title when translated literally back into English, In Venice, A Shocking Red December. Dun, dun, dun. Directed by one Nicholas Rogue, starring Julie Christie as Laura, Donald Sutherland as John. It's from a screenplay by Alan Scott and Chris Bryant, who adapted the story from the, the Daphne de Maurier short story, novella, sort of in between. It's like 60, 70 pages. Uh, It's edited by Graham Clifford, who previous to this film was really just known as a director. And we probably need to discuss 
that while we do a deeper dive into the editing, because I think that is clear in retrospect. Um, The score is by uh, Pino DiNaggio, who prior to this film had never scored a movie. He was a pretty successful kind of singer songwriter in Italy, in his, his native Venice. And uh, so Rogue liked his music enough to bring him on to score this movie. And afterwards, Brian De Palma uh, just happened to buy the uh, vinyl record uh, score for Don't Look Now. Hadn't, hadn't seen the movie, listened to the score, was transfixed by it, and went out, you know, seeked out the movie, watched the movie, uh, was equally transfixed by it, and then invited uh, DiNaggio to uh, score his next film. And it's escaping me exactly which, which uh, De Palma which film De Palma. that was. But uh, that really that's what jump-started Dinaggio's career in Hollywood. And then he scored uh, dozens of movies in Hollywood since then. So he kind of abandoned his old career as like a kind of a singer or kind of pop star. And um, uh, from the looks of it, it looks like he did blow out. There we go. Another movie that we will probably uh, end up watching on the pod at some point. Um, moving on cinematography by Anthony Richmond. Uh, costumes by uh, Andrea Jailer and others. And uh, the reason I'm, I'm actually just going down the list of all the various creatives in this movie is this is a remarkable collaborative effort. Like everything from what we've already mentioned through the art direction, the set dressing, the, the script continuity, um, all of it is so immensely focused and uh, so specifically contributes to a, uh, a whole that is so well-defined and so clear. And I think ultimately that probably speaks the most loudly to, to Rogue as a director and, you know, having that singular vision to kind of marry it all together. The, the accolades that this movie has received and kind of the influence that it's shown over the decades almost made me not want to do a pod episode on it because I, I can't imagine we'll have anything new to say about it, but we're going to try. And worst case scenario is we don't have anything new to say about it, but maybe you don't know much about this movie and now... Maybe you'll know a little bit more because we've done some research and uh, <laughs> spent a lot of time thinking about this movie over the past week. But just to kind of go through, I mean, some of the big ones that come to mind is uh, it's on the sight and sound list. Uh, it's it's n- number 112 on the sight and sound list. But uh, like many movies, uh, it's higher up on the director's poll for sight and sound. It's number 44. So when sight and sound goes out and surveys, you know, all of the who's who of directors in the cinema world. Uh, many of them you know, placed it on the top of their list to the point where it's number 44 of all time, according to prominent directors. And then the British Film Institute, or BFI, puts it the number eight British film of all time. It, it's been so influential on so many directors. Just like a quick kind of shout out through some of the big ones. Like, this movie is the reason that Steven Spielberg featured a little girl in a red coat in Schindler's List. Christopher Nolan's sort of obsession with time and space and bending them in interesting ways in his movies and using one specific color to evoke a certain feeling in his movies came from this. Edgar Wright has said it's his favorite movie or one of his favorite movies. If you ever watch last night in Soho, it's got this movie in spades. The aforementioned Ari Aster, Danny Boyle says it's one of his favorite movies. Soderbergh says that he has stolen more from this movie than any other piece of art. And by his own admission, he loves stealing stuff. Cronenberg said that this was a big influence on his early work. Lars von Trier basically copied this whole movie's premise in Antichrist. Martin McDonough basically parodied, parodied this whole movie in In Bruges. 
on and on and on and on. Many, many people adore this movie. And uh, before you know, we decided to watch this movie, Dan, what, what was your experience with it or, or your experience with Nicholas Rogue as a director? So Rogue is actually someone who I recently started getting into. And he's one of those like, there's one of those names that you know is like big boy, important, influential director. Even I would more specifically say like your favorite director's favorite director as you just listed out. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, sweet. I want to check out what this is all about. And also I was strangely on a David Bowie kick at the same time. So the man who fell to earth was a very easy pick for me at the time. Was really interested by it. Thought it was really cool, but then it was Walkabout that really got me to love Nicholas Rode, Rogue and sort of his uh, visual style and, yeah, his clear influence that you see on a lot of people who I love today, like especially Walkabout. I saw so much that was going to be coming down the line with a lot of stuff I love. So when you put this on the list, I knew Don't Look Now was like an influential movie, but I also knew it was hard to find. Like there, it was always like vaguely on my radar and I would check it like, I don't know, like every three months or so, see where it's streaming and it usually wasn't available. So I just kind of just waited until eventually it was available. But when you put it on, I was like, okay, well, you know, it's on prime for like four bucks. So perfect. Not, not a huge deal. Um, and yeah, when I finally got around to seeing it. So for the pod, this is the first time I've seen it. Um, it well, <laughs> as Jared said that he was bullying me a little bit, justifiably so. I put it on actually after we had recorded last week's episode. I realized I was way too sleepy, so I paused it halfway through. Texted him was like, "Oh, you know, I didn't quite finish it, so I'm just gonna watch the back half uh, this afternoon." He's like, "Why? Don't do it like that. That is a stupid thing to do." And uh, after then, I went all the way back to the, the beginning and then watched it again. And I exactly saw what he meant by all that, which we'll get into as we get deeper in the episode. Um, but yeah, this one totally, it was kind of confounding to me, to be honest, on like the first watch, first impression as I got through it, um, I was having trouble getting on its wavelength. But it's one that definitely after that, doing some study on it learning the ideas behind it, learning the techniques behind it, kind of seeing the way it ticked and then going back and watching again, it worked much, much better on me. As Jared, I think, mentioned earlier, like this is definitely one that uh, rewards multiple viewings in spades. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I totally get why it deserves or why it's as high up on the list as it is, why it's so influential to so many directors. Um, and, and we'll see towards the end. I actually had a real bitch of a time trying to find a recommendation from before 1992 because it's almost like this movie is so singular that there's not much before it that I think is like it at all to compare it to. So I had, I was like confined to the, the narrow window of films I've seen between 73 and 92 because it, yeah, it just left such an indelible mark on cinema. And so for that, like it's worth the watch all by itself. Jared, what about you? Really the exact opposite. Uh, I've never seen another rogue movie you actually put walkabout on our watch list and then i googled it and i saw that it was by you know, directed by nicholas rogue who i know, knew previously only for don't look now and so i remember asking have you seen don't look now and you're like no and i was like holy fucking shit we need to do don't look now as soon as possible on the pod and uh i watched it back when I was really serious about my horror education. So probably like in my late teens, maybe I was in my early twenties by that point, but 
really like the reason that I watched it back then was because this movie is frequently placed very high on lists of all-time scariest movies or all-time scariest movie scenes, particularly the last like minute of this movie. Two minutes mm. of this movie is frequently cited as like in the top 10 scariest movie scenes of all time. And also the first like five minutes of this movie is likewise constantly put up there as one of the most striking opening scenes of any movie, let alone any horror movie. And so I watched it back then. It absolutely blew my mind. So I watched it again immediately after that back then. And then I haven't seen it in the last like 15, 16, 17 years. Uh, and then I watched it a couple times this week. I uh, read the short story that it's based upon, read portions of more than one draft of the screenplay. Oh, wow. <laughs> God damn it. And uh, uh, don't be like me, folks. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Holds up, gotta say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. So this week, uh, we, we did something a little bit different with the the form of the episode. Uh, I created an outline, which we usually do, but this time I bifurcated it between first, let's talk about the style in this movie, and then uh, next, let's talk about the substance in this movie. And that seems a, a little like a strange thing to do because... Uh, Many movies marry the two, but I would argue that this movie marries style with substance to a degree rarely achieved by by other films. So I thought it might be fun for us to attempt to just talk about style and then just talk about substance and see just how much they actually bleed into each other unintentionally. So you're going to hear us have the same conversation twice is what you're saying. Perhaps. So... <laughs> So I, I think that the the most striking cinematic element of Don't Look Now, ha in, in a movie that's full of striking cinematic elements, must be the editing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, the influence of the, the editing in this movie uh, is profound. And going back, I mean, this is a 50-year-old movie. It is as of, I think, next month, 50 years since its release. And... So this movie comes from a time where editing film was editing film. It was like chopping up and taping together film. And the the just the level of detail in the editing and not not only as far as just choosing the length of shots and like when to move on to the next one but superimpositions and repetitions and kind of messing with space and time in the editing was a, a gargantuan effort at the time you know it's not you know just clicking around on the computer like it is now and i i really can't think of an older movie than this that is more ambitious in the editing can you dan yeah not that's using analog film and i mean that that kind of goes to my point that i was saying like i had a hard time finding a good double feature with a film from before don't look now because it was so I can't imagine seeing this in 1973 when cinema was at the point that it was in 1973. It had to be like almost revolutionary in its work. I mean, the only thing I can think of, um, which is not my recommendation, so I'm not spoiling it, are Tarkovsky films or things like Mirror or like these really avant-garde things where the the point of the cinematic experience is in the edit and in the once again, to use Tarkovsky's word, like the idea that cinema is sculpting in time. And this movie is very much uh, cognizant of that aspect of cinema. 
Yeah, yeah. What one movie that comes to mind from that's you know a few, just a few years before this one that has obviously extraordinarily influential editing is 2001 a space odyssey Mm -hmm. but at the same time i feel like the magic of the editing in 2001 is the just the the the, not the subtlety of it but the the lack of it like like a lot of shots linger for a very long time like obviously there's very cool jump cuts in in 2001 but this movie probably has some of the most editing of any movies that are 50 plus years old and you know that's not to say that it's ostentatious or you know overcooked or anything like that it's all like very very much has like a a, a solid point and really drives the themes home in this movie but uh what are what are some of your favorite moments in this that just have to do with uh kind of the way that scenes are kind of cut together dan well, and especially speaking with that, well, we can get to the audio afterward. Where actually, the cuts at first, when I wasn't like on its wavelength, or I was a little bit tired. Like, it, it almost worked better at the beginning because I was tired because it disoriented me. Like, I was kind of more, uh, I was more ready to be kind of kicked around by the movie because I wasn't like locked or as locked in as I wanted to be. I mean, the obvious choice is are the opening and ending scenes of the way those are edited. The I really love some of the premonition scenes that come in or what you later find out are the premonition scenes and the way those were cut. Um, I like, uh, especially with like cutting back and forth, there was an interesting way. And I don't know if this was deliberate by Sutherland in it when they found the body in the river right after, like shortly after you had that premonition scene of, um, of Laura and the two, the two older women on the boat that turned out to be the, like a funeral boat. I thought it was Laura who was dead for a second. Like I, I couldn't quite tell. And you kind of saw on uh, Sutherland's face too, that like it could have gone either way. And I actually like, I, I purposely paused and I went back to check her outfit before mm-hmm. uh, she left for, uh, to go back to England. And it, it like just created this disorientation in me as well as uh, with Donald Sutherland's character, John, John's his name. And I really loved that ambiguity in uh, the, like the subjectivity of both the audience and uh, Donald in there. Because even if John, I'm going to call him John, not Donald. He's John in the movie. Um, because even though like it turns out that it's pretty clear that it's not her, like you're seeing his wheels turn that way of like he's already freaked out. He's worried about his wife. And then he sees the dead body of a woman who's at least vaguely similar to her coming out of the water. And you're experiencing that same, like, I, I don't think that's her. I'm pretty sure that's not her. Like 98% sure that's not yeah. her, but like, I still feel this like primal fear of like, I'm seeing my wife fished out of the water. Yeah. I mean, we've obviously been trained to fear his loved one being fished out of the water at that point, you know? Mm. Right. And yeah, I, I, it, that that's one of the coolest things that this movie does. And it's something that is confounded or really put off some critics of this movie is that when that second sight of John's is presented and, and you later find out that it's a flash forward or we're not actually seeing, you know, space and time in conventional terms, it's not pointed out like, you know, there, the, it's not in the edit. Like we don't, kind of morph into a different place in time. And we don't have like the telltale signs that we are now looking at a premonition or we're now looking at something that's happening in the future or happening in the past. It's in the cinematography and it's in the edit that we're just experiencing it in the same 
space and time as yeah, it, gone. It's shot naturalistically. So like you actually yeah. don't know. Yeah. So using just these like naturalistic or what I would refer to as kind of more conventional mm. uh, mm -hmm. shooting techniques become ridiculously unconventional when the reveal happens. So when you go back and watch, have you watched it the second time at all? Yeah, I did watch it a second time. Yeah, I mean, so like you start to notice like the dwarf woman lurking in the background here and there. You see the funeral barge going by where where no attention is drawn to it, like it is in the scene that you're describing. And um, man, it's so it's so neat and like just the the fact that they don't they choose not to like ostentatiously edit that part when so much of the movie is edited somewhat ostentatiously yeah. creates like such a ill at ease feeling the second time you watch it pretty pretty cool um and going back to your point all the way up at the top about like how this is such a collaborative effort like it really demonstrates just how you can how a good editor work well an editor who is a director can work directly with the director to really stretch or play beyond the limits of what you think editing can do to evoke a reaction out of audiences and play with their expectations in ways that they're not trained to understand like it completely breaks the syntax yeah certainly and actually i want i want to clear up a couple things that i learned while watching some of the supplemental material on the new criterion release of this movie is uh there's some great stuff with with graham clifford talking about his editing techniques and two things really struck me hard is one he also is the sound editor of the movie oh oh that's interesting it is, yeah. We'll and we'll get to that. I'm sure you'll have thoughts because I know you, you have strong feelings about the sound. Um, but two, uh, he was he he made a lot of these decisions on his own. Like like Rogue, like you know they they were he was there. He was watching dailies. You know he was there in Venice while the movie was being shot. He was you know contributing, you know to the collaboration. But once it was time to actually get in the editing room and and do the damn thing, he like he and Rogue had such like a a, a kind of commonality of vision that he kind of just went nuts and right. and rogue certainly would like check in on progress and get feedback and stuff but it, rogue wasn't there like breathing over his shoulder in the editing booth mm -hmm. um and i think that's really cool like he kind of gave his collaborator this uh like this trust and this level of uh autonomy and ownership over the right. edit and man like clifford really 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 delivered on it and uh I think it's so awesome. Uh, my favorite one is is in the opening scene. <laughs> and the second time you watch it, it's like so much heavier where Sutherland is John, excuse me, now I'm doing it, is <laughs> you know he's he's checking out the images of the church that he's about to go in uh, in the future and near future and and go and restore. And he sees the dwarf woman in the red coat there, like in the church in the pew. Mm -hmm. the moment that his, daughter is beginning to drown he spills water onto this image that looks like his daughter it kind of turned the, the the red smears like it's blood and it washes the blood washes over the church and in that moment he like you see his actual daughter reflected in the water that has spilled onto this thing and then uh the, the camera sort of moves up and and they superimpose like an actual image of his daughter running over it and then it kind of disappears into the water and that's when we know or when he knows what's happened to his daughter and uh it's such a cool marriage of just like the the, the flash forward and kind of seeing this this creature in the in the image and all of that all of the the, the you know the blood red 
the 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 water that comes back over and over again is all like just kind of superimposed on top of each other and uh and it's such like a weird image and it's like such a it seems sort of out of context or or given too much weight when you first first watch it because it happens in like minute two of the movie but then when you watch it again the second time it is remarkable and that's a pretty ballsy thing to do for your movies kind of create this puzzle box that you actually yeah. really need to challenge yourself to to unlock yeah and the way that you're putting it like and and in, in giving uh him the 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 carte blanche on editing i think what was most impressive is kind of the times when he showed restraint and just to let the shot happen yeah where especially with that um you know the the normal traditional cinematic language would be to kind of, you know, um, heighten all the images, make them a little surreal and make it seem like, oh, he's like seeing things. He like something is strange, but it almost, you know, of course, I, I personally don't believe people don't have foresight. You know, you can tweet at me if you disagree and show me evidence. But it was presented in a way that much like how you have memories, it's just so matter of fact it feels like how it would actually look like for a human being to have this kind of really, really heightened sense of intuition that something is wrong. So actually when I was watching it, even the first time, like when he jumped, when he jumped to his feet and realized something was wrong, like I kind of intuitively understood. It's like, yeah, I would feel like something's up too. If I got all of a sudden, all this, like these signs coming into my head, both like the physical ones of the picture and the, the, the water coming over and then just these mental images are popping through too. Like I also would feel uneasy and feel like I need to address something as well. Um, and I think it, it, I don't know. It's just, it's just an excellent way to kick it off where, and also at the same time upon the first viewing, my first thought wasn't this guy's psychic. He has foresight. Like it just felt like, Oh, he just, he just thought something's, something's fucky and needs to go check it out. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's so rad that um, this movie where the like so much of the the kind of the cinematic grammar, as as Rogue called it really famously, is subverted over and over and over again when something is a little bit more relaxed or um, conventional in a way, uh, it almost like draws more attention to it. And uh, yeah, pretty, pretty masterful stuff. How about the cinematography? I mean, we got to talk about like the use of color in this, but I think like what I want to talk about more is just how this movie portrays the city of Venice. Like it's uh, such a romantic place, like potentially the most romantic place. And this movie shows it in a way that very much subverts those expectations and we apologize for the Paris Board of Tourism. You guys are now the second most romantic city in the world. Sorry about that, Paris. <laughs> I, when I think of you, I think of catacombs. <laughs> Venice, though, now I'm going to think of rats, pigeons, blood, murder, bodies in the water, a hopeless maze that folds in on itself, and uh, you know, murders, all of all that stuff. Also, though, just that this like movie shows Venice and like these shades of gray and brown and like they purposely remove the red from, you know, uh, some, you know, the most romantic color red uh, mm. from all the shots and until it's time to like really highlight something uh, to kind of dig deep. What, what are your thoughts on that and kind of what it, what it means to the movie? 
Yeah, so actually, it, it's funny that I made a Parisian joke, too, because that was something I really appreciate about a, a movie set in Paris a few years ago called uh, Les Miserables, but it's not about the play at all. It's like a, it's like a, a cop, not a cop drama, but it's like a, a drama about basically people on the margins in Paris, and it shows Paris unromantically, and that's almost like part of it that shows that like there's this place that you have this idea of this place in your head and this idealized notion of everything you've ever read and like to an extent that that is kind of how or that is how it is but it's also like not everywhere and not all the time and that's one of my favorite changes from the novella to the the film in the novella it's tourist season and they're there as tourists where Mm -hmm. in the in the film they're there working in quote unquote the off season and yeah, it, it looks dreary. It looks like a graveyard. And I'm sure he like heightened it. But I, I mean, you know, just winter in northern or central northern Italy, I'm sure it doesn't look nearly as picturesque as the middle of June or July. Um, and I really appreciate that. And it really drives home what you're talking about, the point of like, even at the time, people knew Venice is a slowly, inevitably sinking and dying city. So it's like, it actually is quite, um, what's the word I want to say, like symbolically rife for meditations on like the inevitability of death and our uh, inability to stop it. No matter how hard we try to preserve what is there, um, it's it's all it's all gonna die. We're all we're all falling into the the deep deep falling into the water. So like it's still like the yeah. this is one of those where the cliche of the location is a character is very much applicable here. Uh, because Venice really, as you said, it's like very labyrinthine. It's very, um, it's not built on like these modern uh, super rational grids that we're used to seeing. And for these two very modern characters or with very modern sensibilities, they easily get lost around it. And that that then ties into the the theme of the editing that we're talking about, where like not everything's going in order and you don't actually even know when it's out of order or when it's in order or which way you're turning throughout the story. And yeah, I think it's like, it's a perfect decision for the setting and it's even more perfect that they made that change from the novella. So like, I really credit, uh, the, I guess the screenwriters on this one, but even going into the whole collaborative effort that is don't look now. Yeah. Well, so funny that you mentioned it because the way that that really shook out is, Um, This movie wasn't a kind of passion project of Rogue. This movie started with the screenwriters writing a screenplay that pretty much directly adapted the the, the, the Maurier short story. And I I read a portion of their second draft and it it really is just like, oh, it's the short story, but in screenplay form. And then I read parts of their first draft after Rogue came on and it's a lot closer hmm. to what you know we see in the final movie, but then the actual shooting script that Rogue actually put pen to paper on, along with the two guys, uh, actually has all of the like, oh, here's where the color red is going to be, and like, here is uh, kind of what we're actually seeing right now. It actually takes place, you know, at this part in the the real timeline, and so on and so forth. So yeah, there was uh, quite a bit of collaboration, but yeah, like Rogue definitely is the mastermind there mm-hmm. um going back to venice though i really i really appreciate how like this this very romantic but kind of slowly sinking dying city is also kind of a metaphor for like their relationship their marriage like the 
the rot that is the death of their daughter kind of festering in the middle, even though they're trying so hard to rekindle the romance, to spend time together, to, you know, eat together, to kind of enjoy each other uh, is, is all so just futile. And yeah. uh, go ahead. Oh, um, yeah. And that, that's like, it's the tragedy of Venice, the city, and it's the tragedy of this uh, marriage, too, where like both of them, I, I actually perceive this marriage as, you know, without the death of their child, like it seemed really rock solid and they yeah. seem like excellent and loving partners to one another. But there's just this like, there's this anchor that's just pulling it down and it, and it can only go one direction unless you find a way to address it and, and, you know, not, not necessarily remove it, but just like deal with the fact that you are slowly sinking into the metaphorical sea where like Venice, I mean, it can't be helped at this point. You can't pull a whole goddamn city out of the sea. Um, but you see their marriage kind of as the same thing or something that is beautiful, that, is like worthy of of celebration that is just being uh pulled down by forces really outside of their control like the a a tragic death of a child that could happen to anyone at any time it's, it's not like they neglected the child or anything it's just you know that that, that shit just happens yeah absolutely one of the other th things that i think makes the the way that they shoot the city really gorgeous is their um the way that it's so unpopulated, like you, you talked mm. about it earlier that like in the book, it's tourist season and this it's like empty, but even so like, it's still unnaturally empty. Mm. Like there are certain daytime scenes where you see a crowd here and there, like when they're pulling the body out. And um, but for the most part, man, like it, they really kind of capture the actual architecture of the city unencumbered by humanity, mm -hmm. <laughs> like a lot. And uh, I think it's really pretty. And, um, and especially a city that is like, I'm sure at this point, it's almost designed to hold tourists. So, and I've, I've lived at, like, I currently live in San Diego, which is a very big tourist party city. Nashville was very much the same when I lived there too. Like during the cold months, this both cities kind of feel eerie and empty because they're designed to hold so many more people mm. during the peak of tourist season. So when they're all not here, I mean, for me, it's nice as a local because it's like, oh, now I can do all this fun stuff that no one's trying to do. But like, it does kind of have this ghost town feel to it that Venice was uh, having too. And speaking to your uh, comments on the cinematography, what I love specifically about here, which really helps make this place feel like a maze, there are no high shots of the cities. There's no establishing shots. You are always down on the street, the building, like, even though it's not like a, like, there's no skyscrapers or anything like that, but all the buildings are up. The walls are like, you cannot see on the other side of the buildings and stuff. So you are down on the ground in this labyrinth, um, much similar, like a literal labyrinth, like a hedge maze or something like that. You never get that one shot overhead that lets you orient yourself. You're always down. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Um, I, I also really like how this movie kind of captures like the gothic aesthetic particularly oh, around yeah. the churches and like the decay of the one church obviously that he's working on but i i love when he's uncovering the the statues or like i guess they're kind of like the gargoyles and like the one that he's like restored he like uncovers it and it's just like this fucking awful grotesque thing <laughs> and like he has it's like mouth moment. keeps pushing up against him <laughs> 
Well, he has, well, there are two things. He has this moment where like he first uncovers it and he kind of looks like he's scared of it. Like he wasn't expecting it to look like that, even though like he's the one that restored it. And it's just yeah. like another weird, weird thing to kind of like, kind of keep, keep you like, you know, weirded out. <laughs> but also later when he dies, there's a quick shot of him like making out with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, this is fun. Like, we're already failing so hard on the style oh, and substance thing. I was about to say, it's like, hey, remember when we were supposed to be talking about the style? <laughs> we were going to be talking about the cinematography, and we just went off on like, oh, man, like, what about the, like, Venice as a decaying city? Let's go on <laughs> on that tangent for a while. Well, I did uh, wonder that, too. I would need to go, like, I don't know, if, if we did this episode three weeks from now and I could really spend some time, I would want to go shot by shot on that final supercut and figure out were all those shots previously in the film? Like, have we already seen any of them or any of them new? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's a combination or a lot of them are like bastardizations of earlier shots. Like mm. earlier when he uncovers the gargoyle, like we, di we didn't see him like kissing it. <laughs> well, but it I did see the gargoyle like, like it was a bit of comedy at the time. Like the face kept pressing against his face. Oh, right, it's, right. It's mouth kept hitting him. So like, when I saw, you know, the super cut at the end where they were like lip to lip, like it didn't trigger, like it didn't trigger any memory of like, oh, that's not how that was. Cause like, uh, was it like, that? like how real memory works? You're kind of like, oh yeah, was it like that? I don't remember. That was like close enough. Okay. I guess we'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, back onto the visuals though. Cause I mean, <laughs> obviously like, you know, you can't really talk about this movie without talking about just the incredible lengths that they, went to to either not include or to dramatically include this like very specific shade of red mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know i i know that like obviously there are kind of more thematic resonant you know uh reasons why why red um again it's a romantic color it's a violent color it's you know the color of kind of blood and death but it also is the color of kind of life and rebirth and and birth birth and rebirth and, and all that good stuff but i think the thing that actually i that i that i like the most about how they were so particular with that specific shade through all the costumes through all the set decoration all the props etc cetera, etc cetera, and like how when they would deliberately not include any red in shots is it, it almost just after a while starts to just have like a almost undefinable impact on your mood like what like what you're expecting from the visual language and like starting to look for it and starting to like miss it kind of like starts to almost feel like like it, for me it, it did kind of invoke that sense of loss or grief and stuff like yeah it's like the sun is not out or something like that yeah when you're not seeing it it's like the sun is not out like it's yeah. like their daughter is gone and like mm -hmm. she was draped in that red and then like, to, to to add to your point like there's those couple scenes where you do see uh like the dwarf running around you see it like on the edge of the screen and when you notice you're like oh oh, oh there like, it is yeah yeah you want to chase it and yeah, 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 and like you, you also want to like chase it. So when you see him, uh, uh, when you see John like react to it, and even though you like, if you think about it for two more seconds, you realize that red is probably dangerous. Like just even seeing any sort of bright red color after you've been so deprived from it, like, oh, 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 there it is. Let's go there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, they really train your eye to kind of go to it and. 
Uh, sometimes it's used as a distraction so that you can kind of get like a surprised red herring. By... Oh, yes. <laughs> very yes. <laughs> Uh, an, another movie that I, I, I have to talk about because uh, I think just a, a movie kind of training you with a specific color. Uh, I, my, I think my favorite example, even more so than Don't Look Now, is Memento. Mm-hmm. That uh, Christopher Nolan's been very clear that, that this is where he stole the technique from. Is uh, that movie does it to an even greater extent, and to the point where I think it's even like there's like a certain filter that goes on a lot of shots to make sure that a spe- this specific shade of almost like powder blue or baby blue is included in in basically every single not basically like literally every single shot that is not in black and white in Memento uh, includes this very specific shade of blue, and uh, I remember wondering about it and like listening to the commentary tracks and that sort of thing on the DVDs back when I was a teenager. And uh, Nolan, like, you know, he makes some comment that he read that this kind of specific shade of blue is, is supposedly evokes us a feeling of nostalgia with you not understanding why you're feeling that nostalgia. And it's in every single shot. Like the, the, the DVD case is that color. Like it's, it's in every single shot. And then when we get to the black and white portions where it's just Leonard in the hotel, you just feel like wrong. You feel like mm-hmm. empty and like, like you're missing something. And uh, yeah, it, he, he went to even like more incredible lengths to just like make the whole movie that color compared to don't look now where it's like very kind of deliberately absent sometimes. And then, you know, kind of catches your eye here and there. Memento is just a wash in this one shade through the whole movie. Hey, other you know, than another movie, movie that incorporates that shade of blue a decent amount that we don't really talk about too much on this pod. I don't know if you guys have heard of this one. It's called Skinamarink. Oh, dear God. You're <laughs> right, man. We talk so much about how that movie evokes a nostalgia that just creeps. And yeah, that's the same shade of blue. Um, Sienna Marink is just a wash in it. Memento is just a wash in it. I wonder if Kyle, Kyle Edward Ball like actually is like kind of like, aware of that and like yeah. maybe if that was maybe con- yeah conscious or not. Yeah, yeah, because it does also do that. It also does, and it has the same effect. Pretty cool stuff. Um, back to Don't Look Now, <laughs> and and specifically the style. Yeah, <laughs> we're not talking about anything of substance until the second half. Which by the time um, we get to it, we'll probably have beat to death all of the points that we want to get to. Which will be fine. We'll all <laughs> we'll all take the rest of the night off. <laughs> uh, Dan, you you made some specific comments about how it really uh, uh, like the sound kind of put you off of the movie a little bit. Um, I'm wondering kind of if you've kind of reckoned with that and and come around to it or not, or kind of if you can expand upon like what your initial experience was, kind of listening to this movie and how you're thinking about it now. Yeah, so the first time I watched it, um, the the general sound mixing, I almost, which it's it's totally my mistake because this is the third Rogue movie I've seen. I know he knows what he's doing, and I should have had some faith in him to be like, okay, there must be more going on. But specifically within the mixing of the dialogue, sometimes it would be turned up like way too loud or in a way that felt like cheap, like that he just wasn't using the appropriate equipment and it sounded funky in a way that like a, a B movie for ironic that I call this one, a B movie, a B movie uh, in the seventies or the sixties would sound like, and, and particularly with uh, the character of John, there's a lot of his dialogue. That's just like way overblown compared to everything else. And it was taking me out where all of a sudden I was paying attention to that. Um, and, and especially with, um, 
there's some quieter scenes where he's just talking and all of a sudden it's just like way louder than everything else. Or, um, of, of course, in the opening scene where you have him holding his child and, oh, and dreaming or bellowing where that Oof. one, that one felt more appropriate, but I did notice at the time or like on the very first watch from just, you know, getting my feet on this movie, it, it almost seemed a little over melodramatic. I actually, my first thought was in star Wars episode three, where you have uh, Anakin go, no oh yeah you mean the, the slow-mo shot where he's bellowing yeah 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 where, like that one is a little melodramatic and kind of corny uh which you know it's not the, don't look now's fault that someone did that to like a silly degree about 30 years later uh, oh yeah <laughs> i don't know man for, for me the sound of his voice and his the look of his face and just what he is projecting like truthfully, like without a lot mm. of uh, ego, I've heard without ego, without vanity. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, that that is one that might be the the most striking portion of the movie for me. I mean, again, it's between that and the very end. Mm-hmm. But man, Donald Sutherland, he is he 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 like performance of a lifetime in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And uh, at the time, man, he was he was really doing incredible things to you know, have really striking images of his face in horror movies. Like, I don't want to spoil Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but very, very striking use of Donald Sutherland's face mm-hmm. and voice in that movie, too. He's just yeah. got kind of one of those faces where, like, you can really, it's, like, cartoonish in the way that he can contort it. Yeah, totally. And it's it's funny because, like, his son, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, they have a very similar face, but Kiefer is, like, such a understated actor by comparison that it's kind of interesting, like, how unalike they are as actors, even though they look and sound like... They have like the same almost. physical toolkits that they're using. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of neat. Um, both of them are phenomenal actors, as far as I'm concerned. That's 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 like when Hollywood nepotism doesn't bother me. It's like, well, yeah, if like one dude's a good actor, his his boy probably will be. You know, yeah. Uh, not to get too far off on the Hollywood, like the nepo baby thing that uh, has been. Eh, it's kind of we're on the backside of that at this point. Like, you know, it always kind of confused me because it's like, you know, like coming out of baseball, like. Baseball technically had a huge nepotism problem too. I can't tell you how many people I played with that were sons of professional athletes. And it's like, well, of course, like if you grow up in that environment, you're going to be, you're just going to get all that like informal training from just your parents because that's how they are. And that's how they interact with you. Um, but maybe it's something for a different episode. Um, but yeah, with the the sound mixing, I was much more attuned to when you know, they had that they were bringing the supercuts, they were bringing in sound that was disproportionately loud, like the breaking glass. You have all the splashing water, and you, you see those as motifs popping over and over. The other, I would say, the only one when it came to all that, the I guess the diegetic noise outside of the, 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 the dialogue, um, was when he fell off the scaffolding. Where I, I got a lot, like, I've, I've read a lot of things about a lot of people like being really unnerved by that. But I think when when I watched it, even the second time, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, it's a little silly. Like, it, I, it didn't feel nearly as dangerous as I thought the sound was informing me that it was. Mm. Um, where I, it was one where I intellectually understood what was going on thematically there, but that visceral, like the punch that was trying to be delivered through the sound just wasn't hitting me. Now that could be user error. That could be just my subjective viewing of it. But that was at least one scene where I felt like, Hmm. And 
I don't know why we're like sitting here this long on him, like not going or having a 15 foot fall. Like, and I understand, you know, we have falling, like that's a motif going over and over. He's trying to uh, revive a mosaic. So we've got the revival of the dead going on. Like I said, I, I understand all the, the thematic content that's going on, but like from the, yeah, just from the, the, just the immediate impact on me, the viewer, I was like, I, I, I wish I got it, I guess is the, the, yeah. you, you know what I think it is? I don't think they like, and actually this is like one of the only time, like times I'll say, say this about the movie. Like, I don't think they actually succeeded in uh, really demonstrating how much of a fall it would be. Mm. Like they, it does seem certain shots make it seem like uh he's lower to the ground than he actually is. And I think that is just because of the stunt work is, is like actually like lower to the ground than we're meant to believe, but they don't do a very good job of establishing that he's actually like 50, 60 feet. That up. could be like, I felt like it was precarious. I didn't trust that fucking scaffolding for a second, but it felt like, I mean, I'm sure as a kid where you've been up on like 15, 20 foot fences and you just kind of drop off them and you kind of, you, you sink your feet when you land and you kind of roll and you're fine. Yeah. Well, Maybe, like if you're like a 45 year old man though i don't know <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah, i don't maybe maybe not i don't know if i'm yeah even as a 31 year old man if i'm jumping off 20 30 foot balconies no, pro- probably not yeah not not without <laughs> at least a little little pressure on the knee the next day um, <laughs> but yeah it kind of goes a little bit over long where it's like oh him swinging back and forth and then trying to push him with the big rod and then catch him just kind of goes on past the point of feeling the danger and it, it now just becomes like the silly right, action John hanging from a rope. Yeah. Yeah. It's like kind of silly action sequence. And you know, the, the sounds that he's making are, you know, I would say probably are a little comical. Like once, once they kind of push it past the point of like how long we should be dealing with this situation. Um, yeah. You know, I, I will concede. I think that scene is a little silly. Yeah. It could, it could. Yeah. I think that's, that's the big one. If you just want to shorten that bit where he's just kind of chilling on the rope, just waiting for him to fish him in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, or one of the things. Oh, go ahead. Or, or I think would have been interesting. And here, this is me trying to tell some uh, Nicholas Rogue about how he could make his movie better. You know, a film that uh, all uh, esteemed directors put forty fourth overall. But let me tell him uh, how he could have fixed it. Um, if during that uh, the rope swinging scene, that's when you start doing flashbacks. That's when you start start doing super cuts. Where, like I got that sense. At least that's what. Um, Sutherland was trying to do as he was acting is like realizing the the weight that he's like starting to connect the dots a little bit or he's at least shaken because he's getting all these premonitions in and he's getting all these signs that like falling is bad that he's in danger that something is afoot and he had like a near miss um yeah so if during that swing if there would have been like I don't know like a mini version of that final supercut or like a much softer version to kind of uh, prep the audience or or to to condition the audience yeah I, yeah i think so too but i mean i think it might even be like a simpler fix than that just like give us some sense of scale to how high yeah. up he is yeah yeah, yeah 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 maybe maybe that would have been too dangerous like as far as the stunt work or anything like that yeah it but could have been a practical issue who knows who knows but in any case i think that scene goes on a little bit too long and yeah you know what maybe this movie should be like 45th or 46th all time not forty fourth. <laughs> yeah, it gets it gets knocked down two points. Two. Hey, we're, real, we're, we're really re- we're really reaching to try to talk a little bit of shit about don't look now. 
here's here's what we need to talk about though because it's the first thing that you ever said about this <laughs> like the very first point you ever made to me about this movie is dan talk to me about just how fucking well dressed these yuppies are oh my god these these comfortable self-assured self uh, uh possessed uh intellectual artistic professionals are looking so good they're dressed so well what does laura do for work do we know is that ever brought up uh, she 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 researches questions that her daughter asks her about the Earth being flat. I mean, yeah. if you had to answer every question a three year old girl asked you, that would be a full time job. And uh, I do, <laughs> and it is. And uh, that's not the type of questions three year olds ask. No, three year olds ask questions like, "Daddy, when you were when you were little, were you a boy or a girl?" <laughs> I was a toddler. Is what I was. Yeah. I was um, nothing. I was always your dad. <laughs> I came out the womb bald and with a full beard. That's exactly right. It was very painful for my mother. Um, no, uh, but yeah, she's, uh, ooh, she's, I, I don't know what she, I don't. I don't. I don't know what she does though. I don't think she does anything. I think they both have this lavish, you know, uh, bohemian lifestyle. Uh, by his job as being like a artist and a restorer of old buildings. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. know, like, if he had a business card, what it would say. Like, you obviously see him on this one job, and you see he's, like, very interested in history. He's very interested in art restoration. That would be my guess, is something in art restoration. He's clearly quite successful at it if he's uh, helping to fix churches in fucking Venice. And just, you know, they, their son, who hilariously, you never hear about this son. They just, like, hey, your sister died. We're just going to leave you at boarding school. We're going to go off to Venice to try and see how our marriage is doing by Johnny but like just given you know the context clues of the way that they're living their lives and what they can do they're clearly well to do and at least John I don't know if he's the only one working and the breadwinner and all that stuff but uh, going all the way back to how they're dressed like there's not too too much thematically to to really dig into other than like whoever the fucking costume designer is on this goddamn they were uh, dressing Laura really well like that was something I noticed yeah every outfit Every outfit she Every wears, outfit. she's killing yeah. it. Or, John was, uh, was well dressed too, but well, like, well, okay, but 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 Laura Laura has a lot of killer outfits, and oftentimes they're very uh, monochromatic, like just kind of head to toe mm. in like browns or beiges. And that's or, why I had trouble when they found that body in the water. I couldn't tell if that was her or not. Right, or like when she's you know black and head to toe, and she's she's at his mm. funeral basically, mm. or just like like you know just like white underwear. Or um, yeah, but but John, man, he's got that that one blue coat that he's always wrapped in that has uh, just the little billow of a red scarf at his neck. Uh, yeah. Very very much foreshadowing his ultimate fate in the movie. Right around his neck too. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's like oh. glowing red. <laughs> I got out a of memo now. out of his neck. Yeah, clever stuff there. Clever stuff. But all that to say is just like every aspect of this was really really thought through uh so well and sometimes it's the little things like that you know don't seem like super like mind-blowingly creative but are are very cool like like dressing him in such a way where we're drawn to the the red coming out of his neck as a foreshadowing like those little touches go such a long way and just like the care to do that and like mm -hmm. or something is something that is missing from a lot of of especially like modern Hollywood movies, right? Yeah. We need and to return to a time where, you know, 
uh, really, really clever Brits were given good budgets to make real psychological, kind of slow-moving, crafty horror films, damn it. <laughs> um, and speaking of the uh, scarf, this got me thinking, too. Like, I did actually appreciate that uh, when, you know, when he finally does get the old knife to the neck, like, it's not naturalistic blood. It's like giallo blood. This is like Hawaiian punch coming out, and it's a bright, vibrant red and it was never like just like in giallo like it's never meant to be realistic but it's it's more just emphasizing that uh, that motif on uh, color yeah and it's also like extremely watery mm-hmm. the way it flows out of him it doesn't have the viscosity of blood it it has the it it, it appears to be more water again i think like uh, i think continuing kind of uh, going down that motif of of flowing water and and water being death and and that sort of thing I do think that's intentional. It kind of keeps going. I, I love the shot where uh, his feet are kind of sticking out from like the vents up above where he dies. And I think it's like beneath them is a church. I think again, like his blood is kind of flowing into a church similarly to. Yeah. Cause that's where at, he was trying to go initially. If I recall. Yeah. Like similarly to like the way it's foreshadowed at the beginning with the water spilling, the, the red going across the church go, coming from the dwarf's coat in the image uh man so cool uh and by the way i mean i mean i think we just need to talk a little bit about the the ending and uh just visceral reaction of it there's Mm. something about the dwarf's face and the way she's moving her head back and forth that is so unnerving and just the matter of factness to which she like pulls out her her like cleaver and just like kind of like gets him like just kind of sticks him with it like it's of course this is what's meant to happen this is your like fate accompli like here it is like eh, boom like there's something just so fucking unnerving about her yeah she's almost body like language. emotions yeah and like she's kind of shaking her head no or like and uh oh and, and meanwhile uh laura is there seeing him and she 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 screams out darlings plural Oh, um, like John is is getting back to Christine, yeah. Um, and yeah, man, uh, that ending is right, kind of rightfully in the in the annals of of really unsettling uh, so, horror scenes. So it reminded me of, and I have no idea how these two characters actually connect, but it's the first thing that I thought of was um oh i just i just lost his name i was gonna um i have him starkly in my head but you've seen twin peaks right i have not oh no oh bob bob's his name there's a character named bob that if people listening know about bob he has the same presence where he's not like he's just in the frame he's just there he's not doing anything too crazy and big to scare you but there's just something about this like the way he's looking right at the screen and the way he fills the frame and he's like coming your direction, very similar to how you're describing the dwarf at the end of this at Don't Look Now, where I got the same response, but they're doing, I would argue, very different things, but I don't know what similarly is going on, which like usually, the best, at least for me, the best horror is the shit I can't ultimately explain. And good Lord, a David Lynch film, no one can explain. Right, man. I I think I think we need to add Firewalk with me to the the pod schedule so that I have to watch Twin Peaks in its entirety as well, because um, it's well, definitely a gap in my watching. And like, 
I, I know that I would love it. And a lot of people consider Firewalk with me to be David Lynch's opus, I believe. And uh, I feel like I would love it. And uh, I would almost I, be interested to see you watch it without Twin Peaks because there are people that have oh, done that and still get a lot out of it. Interesting. But but I, I've, I've always been interested in Twin Peaks just as an example of like a very prominent... Um, you know, visionary auteur uh, dabbling in television. Also, like that very ahead of its time in that way. You live in the Northwest and you haven't watched Twin Peaks. I've been to where they shot it, and I've had the <laughs> I've had the damn fine coffee and pie, or is that what it's called? Damn fine. What is it called? Damn good. What is it? Yeah, it's a damn fine cup of coffee and yeah, yeah cherry pie and, cher- and cherry pie. Yeah, I've had it at the restaurant where they shot that, um, <laughs> which is a Snoqualmie Falls, Washington. If anyone is wondering, um, but yeah, let's add it to the list, man. Maybe maybe that's one of your uh, recommendations. Maybe oh, right. maybe we're looking into the future right now. Of what we're going to hear on this episode? Ooh. Oh my god. <laughs> And now okay. cut to a bunch of me talking about that in a very strange, mismatched way of talking about Twin Peaks from the episode that we do a year from now. Oh, you're <laughs> blowing my fucking mind. All right, I'll let's talk about the kids. Let's talk about the sex in this movie. How do how we gone the, how we gone this long without talking about that very real, unsimulated sex scene in this movie? <laughs> unsimulated. Well. Uh, let me back up just a hot sec that now we are officially transitioning from style to substance. But as you could tell, we talked about a lot about the substance and I have a personal yeah. ethos that a lot of my very, very, very favorite films, I consider the style to be the substance of the film where the way, the unique way that it is portraying information to you on screen is what it is where is what you're trying to get out of it where there you know you hear the gripe all the time it's like all style no substance i just i really don't see why we separated the two and don't look now is an excellent exercise in why the two are like un you you can't untangle them they have to work together and the best exercises in style are usually the best exercises in substance so now let's talk about sex uh and sex exercise but yeah, um, yeah, Jared, give give a little backdrop on uh, this sex scene. Um, what, uh, how people responded to it at the time, and it's kind of legacy that uh, it still has today. Sure, yeah, and then we'll go into breaking down like what what makes it so. We're gonna break um, down positions. We're gonna break down tempo of thrusts. We're gonna break down the moans. We're gonna go frame by frame like this is a football game here folks yeah i've, d- I've done that before uh, <laughs> <laughs> well again i watched this movie for the first time and i was like 17 um no so the i mean when when the movie came out like this was the talking point like this is like a lot of just the artistry of this movie was sort of overshadowed by oh this movie has like a really graphic sex scene in it and it i guess it's pretty graphic like I, I don't know maybe i'm just really jaded at this point but i do actually remember <laughs> at the time when i first watched it being like oh yeah that, that seems like it's real when i was when i was you know a teenager when i watched this now i'm looking at it it's like oh it's just really pretty this seems um, real. i know what sex looks like i mean it seems it's just it does seem like just really pretty and passionate and um it does seem kind of real in that like it, it feels it feels real like the it feelings feels that it evokes real. the feelings that it evokes kind of like feels like when you what it feels like to have sex with someone that you love but um yeah like at the time it was like people thought it was real like oh my god they're like did they really have sex in this movie and like people still like now now that like 
but the two of them are like you know the octogenarians like they still get asked like do you really fucking don't look now <laughs> so like articles can, will could come out where it's like donald sutherland confirms they did not fuck and don't look now. And he's Still like fucking he's like in his walker. Like, I promise you, I didn't have sex with that woman. Like, <laughs> I did not have sexual relations with, with that, that woman. Uh, that specific woman I'm pointing at. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, and you know, it's, uh, but, but really like, it, it's one of the, the most artful scenes in the movie and, and particularly in the edit where, the passion and the vulnerability of their lovemaking is juxtaposed with just like really mundane shots of them, like getting dressed either mm. after or a completely different day or like they don't, they're not actually clear. It's like it, if they're like getting dressed after having sex or if it's just a like completely separate time and place. But um, yeah, like just seeing that mundanity of like, Oh, these people are, you know, like them, like them having sex with each other is not like this monumental occurrence, but it's still like, I mean, they, like they know each other so well. They're so intimate with each other. Like we see them nude together in very mundane circumstances, like him brushing his teeth, for instance. And uh, it, it kind of like shines a light really deeply on like, like a very long term relationship where like the sex is never going to be like by rote. But at the same time, there is like a such a familiarity to it that watching it juxtaposed with just like the, the mundanity of their existence kind of makes sense. And it doesn't like, doesn't like diminish the passion that we see, but at the same time, it, it like frames it in such a way that, you know, like that's marriage like really. Yeah. And uh, their marriage seems remarkably healthy to your point, what you said earlier, even in spite of the grief that they're feeling, which makes the tragedy of this movie all that much more tragic. And that scene really, really, um, you know, acts as like a bullhorn to the tragedy of the ending of the movie as well. Yeah. And, and, and there's a couple of things that what you're saying about the mundanity of it that sets it up to make it appropriate to really like lock in and focus and kind of at least dramatically edit it, even though the the reality of it is something that could seem quite mundane is one is like um, Laura's character has like just recently like because she's discovered that oh her daughter's okay the two the two women have like essentially for whether true or not have like healed her psyche and it, it seemed it, it's more clear in the book but it was at least it was clear to me in the film or at least heavily implied like they hadn't had sex in a while especially since the death of their daughter yeah it could have um, been the first time they had sex since the death of their daughter yeah um, and it kind of felt like that if not like it was at least the first time it was like passionate and there was a reconciliation that was going on there and then the the small scene about the mundanity beforehand where he's brushing his teeth they're both naked and she just kind of like points out matter-of-factly not judgmentally at all it's like hey you're starting to like kind of get those handles back again or that flab on the back Ooh, and the he love handles and he doesn't respond like self-consciously he doesn't respond like well, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about no no, no. he's, he's just like, like oh, oh huh. yeah maybe yeah there they are there they are we're like you know if i was in a new relationship or something and someone pointed out my love handles I'd be like, <clears throat> no um but they're just so deeply comfortable with one another's bodies almost to the like you know it's the the almost the biblical cliche that they they're they're one unit they're one person where they other know bodies, each like, other yeah, it's like, yeah they know each other we're like that each other's bodies are like so inseparable from one another that like it can be commented on with such little judgment um and, and the other person receives it with such little judgment which just so 
at least demonstrated to me like just the the deep security that this marriage is in which like you said heightens the tragedy that it is falling apart uh because you can really feel like how rock solid that they would be under normal that they were under normal circumstances uh, yeah but and, and it's there oh and also i didn't mention this too that when i first watched this i told jared's like i don't know what this movie's about i don't even know what the tagline of this is about i all i know is that you told me it's a horror movie I don't know anything going into this film. And I kept it that way. And you're like, ooh, goody, ooh, goody. Um, so I didn't know there was like a controversial sex scene in there. So when it mm. like when the scene started, I too was like, I was like, there's a little bit of me like kind of cocking my head a little cocking, cocking my head a little bit and like looking. It's like, are we is this happening? Is this going on? Hold on. Can you can you do that angle? Is that are things lining up? What's going on over there? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. And again, okay. So this is like, this is a testament to both the editing, but also just like the coordination of the the intimacy in this movie. And this is before like intimacy coordinator was like a full-time job in the movie making business. <laughs> but yeah, like they, they shot the scene. It was just, it was just the two actors rogue and the, uh, uh, the cinematographer. Um, uh, and like, they like rented a, like a room, <laughs> and like it had like, like a, an actual a, porn setup <laughs> yeah had like a small handheld camera and just like the uh they shot it in such a way that each individual shot of like their lovemaking is only like a couple of seconds long and it was like extremely choreographed by rogue where it's like where like you'd literally just be like okay now donald now you're gonna move your head just a little bit like this and and move it down and now you're gonna like you know get up on your knees and just stay there for a second two seconds. Okay, great. And like now, now Julie, you're going to like, you know, you're going to put your arm around him and like kind of pull him down and there, that's it. And like, yeah. And it's just edited oh, wow. in such a way that you think you see a lot more than you actually do. Yeah. Cause like, I, I thought that this was all found in the edit. No, it, it was, it was uh, like extremely tightly choreographed. And then the editing is just like still masterful, but it was very like specifically choreographed prior to the edit. And then the edit really makes it happen mm -hmm. and like really makes it feel real along with their performances. Like their acting oh, is fucking incredible. And like, I like, you know, I've, I've like, I, as an actor, I've obviously never done like something that intensely sexual, like in a performance, but I've definitely like portrayed like love scenes and stuff. And it's fucking hard. And like, mm weird to like not be in your head and to like remove yourself like like if you're like at you're actually like physically like rolling around like making out with someone like it's it's really difficult to like remove that from like you know your own experience and really just like actually like continue to like inhabit the characters and man the two of them are fucking like amazing in that scene mm -hmm. Uh, no pun intended. Fucking amazing in the scene. There, yeah, it's amazing fucking in that scene. <laughs> or sorry, no, this is love making, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, there isn't really any fucking going on in that scene, uh, <laughs> as Donald Sutherland is quick to point out. <laughs> yeah, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, actually, the an interesting point that you brought up that um, I didn't realize that was something that I was more attuned to than I realized is the idea of doppelgangers. So like what were, what was on your mind when you're like, Oh, doppelgangers is definitely something we got to bring up in this. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is like the, the doppelganger fear in usually in movies, it's like, I think of like enemy with Jake mm -hmm. Gyllenhaal by, but Denis Villeneuve, like usually it's like you seeing a doppelganger of yourself is the scary thing. In this, it's like 
seeing doppelgangers of your loved ones like is that my dead daughter running around venice did i just see my wife who can't be here but there she is i think it's a kind of an interesting subversion of like the way doppelgangers are usually used like you don't like this movie is fairly subjectively john's movie and john doesn't see himself yeah so i thought that was like kind of a cool like kind of new take while i would still consider this a doppelganger horror movie in a way traditionally just the idea that there's another you that like is out there and like you like you you just feel like you have to be in conflict with them because they shouldn't exist that's usually where the doppelganger fear comes from in this it's like almost something deeper where it's like this perversion of your loved one where it's like someone you think you know intimately is now conspiring against you or or not or not telling the truth or like hiding something from you and like that feeling just really gets under your skin yeah, I mean, movie, or at least my skin in this movie yeah i mean it's the ugly feeling of someone that you're very intimate with like quote unquote can like show their true colors and now everything that you thought about that person is now no longer the case and it it makes you really doubt your ability to perceive people which you see uh john doing that especially especially with when he sees his wife again um in on the the funeral boat and it's it gets into what i think is probably the most interesting facet of this film which is like your ability to construct your own identity within yourself and then how you construct other people's because like you're all we're also doing that with one another where um you know you believe that your wife is a certain way that your children are a certain way because they present themselves to you that way but in reality they only present themselves to to just you like that's a presentation just for you if they go hang out with someone else it's mostly the same but it's going to be slightly different like i'm sure you've you know, you've been to a party with your wife or so, or like a work event with your wife or something, and she behaves a little differently, just like how you behave yeah. a little differently at work. Yeah. But um, you get like this weird, uncanny valley feeling when you see yeah. someone that you know so intimately in one context mm -hmm. suddenly behave differently. It's, yeah. There is like an upsetting factor to it. Now, yeah. of course, Don't we understand like as social beings why they're doing that, and we do the same yeah. thing. But... Um, you can use that and you can stretch that to a really horrifying degree. Yeah. And this movie does that. And the <laughs> horrifying degree to which it, it does is characters who believe in some way that they might actually get to see the daughter that they've lost, and that they miss, that they're going to see, get some kind of catharsis and maybe some sort of way to let her go or see her one more time or, you know, get a little bit of relief from that grief. But instead, what they get is a hideous goblin chopping them to pieces. <laughs> like, it, it's it's like, it's like, not only is like is his body dying in that point, but it's, it's like, like, she kills his soul. Like, yeah, now I'm thinking like of stories, you know, these har harrowing stories that you see on the news and stuff of, like that, of like children killing their parents or something like that. And what yeah. must that final moment in a parent's eyes, like what was she going through their head when this, this person who is a part of their family that yeah. they love, that they thought loved them that like all of a sudden this flip where it's like kind of in John's eyes, like his dead daughter murdered him. Like, yeah. Yeah. And in, in fact, um, I don't want to say the name of the movie cause it'll spoil it, but maybe you'll read between the lines here. But, uh, Lynn Ramsey filmmaker has, has cited this movie and the fear in this movie as a big inspiration on one of her movies. So anyway, I, we can talk about that later, but um, very much, very much the idea of like, oh my God, my child is doing what? Uh, 
Yeah, and, and I'm sure, uh, like to a small extent, or I remember my, uh, you know, just normal parental disappointment, like the first time your child fucking acts out or something at school, and you think they're like a a nice little boy, and they're like being a little shit at school. It's like I thought you were good. What the fuck are you doing over there? Where, especially, well, I'm sure you'll run into this here soon, where you got to send your kid off to kindergarten and elementary school and junior high, where it's that inherent. I don't know what you what, what word I want to use, but like when your child starts to become their own person, separate yeah. from how you interact with them, where right now with your kids, like you're their main person that they're going back and forth with. So yeah. most of their identity is how they behave with you. Yeah. And that's going to stop. Oh, no, trust me. Like, so, uh, yeah, my daughter's been in, in school where she's there eight hours a day for like a few months now. And um, yeah, like just tonight she was being a jerk. <laughs> like she like she like spit in her hand and like kind of like rubbed it on something and we were like we we're like wait yeah exactly we we're like don't do that <laughs> and then 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 she just like did it again and laughed what if she would have given you a grotesque smile and started shaking her head and held a butter knife uh <laughs> yeah uh yeah that would be that'd be terrifying and that, that that's well trod you know in movies like you know the omen and uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess, I mean, it's not really quite the same, but like, you know, hereditary definitely has shades of it. Even like it, she's even dressed in like a little red, like winter coat. And uh, um, yeah, and very, uh, very, very violent. And like not, not only just physical violence, and there's not a whole lot of physical violence in this movie, but the violence at the end, even though it has that sort of giallo uh, unreality to it. it it isn't just like the death of his physical being it's like the death of the whole world that he's constructed it's the death of his identity it's the death of his soul like it's even like, if you survive that there, like there is no surviving what he just went through yeah exactly and and i think that's what makes it just extraordinarily scary compared to like you know a slasher film where mm. you know you're you have to imagine yourself getting carved up or um you know a spooky ghost story where it's like you're having to confront um this piece of you that's separate and you know it's 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 there you have to reckon with it and this it's like all of that colliding into mm. one act of violence yuck terrible. and uh Bad. yeah absolutely fucking harrowing um, and so good. And like what that's the reason why people really point at that ending as being one of the scariest horror movie scenes. Yeah. And and to tie this kind of into another theme that I really enjoy about this, which actually ties into one of my favorite authors. I'm sure I've brought him up here from time to time in the, uh, during the podcast is uh, Murica- Haruki Murakami actually uses doppelgangers quite a bit. Um, my favorite example of this is in his very longest novel. It's uh, I think iq84 i don't know exactly how to say it's just the number one q84 um it it employs doppelgangers almost to the point where there's two entire worlds and they they collide Mm. and there are two moons in the sky and it plays around with another theme that he's very interested in i think this movie is also interested in is the and cinema i think is interested in is the idea of memory and how that works and how memory is tied to the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about who we are. I mean, if you think back, like if you think about constructing, like I am Jared and this is how I am, you're not choosing every piece of information about your life. You are accentuating some and you're dropping others and you're pushing, like you actually don't even remember some bits. So you've pushed so far to the margins that no longer are even a part of your memory. 
and there's shit from you know when you were seven that you're still holding on to that you're that you've decided is part of who you are and all that stuff adds up but the problem with memory and we talked about this in skinnerink is it's mostly bullshit like it's not a historical record at all of who we were as a person like if we somehow had a screen or like a body cam right over our our head that was going that was doing like our subjective internal state uh, and also what we're doing uh, externally, like it would not match up with the person that we believe that we are. Um, and you're seeing this played with because you're seeing these flash forwards, these flashbacks, these uh, this uh, disjointed timeline, which feels much closer to how human subjectivity works. Um, I mean, cause even think about there are times when you are looking forward to the future or you, you think about something coming down the line so much that it may as well be a self-fulfilling prophecy, just like yes. a kick would have, uh, someone with psychic abilities would be able to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the idea of the doppelganger, I think ties into this really, um, shaky ground <laughs> that human identity sits on because once uh, in the case of a doppelganger of yourself, you now all of a sudden see yourself at an angle you've never seen before. And you're seeing, it's kind of like when you accidentally see yourself through a funhouse mirror or an angle or a mirror that's showing, or a picture of yourself that you don't, you're used to seeing yourself straight on in the mirror and you see yourself yeah. at an angle and it freaks you out a little bit. But what if you saw how you behaved without your own filter of knowing it's you and oh, how would God. you judge that person? I think that's really the big fear behind doppelgangers. Like, say there was someone that looked entirely different from you. So you didn't associate with you at all, but they acted exactly the same as you. Oh, God. How would you judge that person? Well, if I found them attractive, I would marry them. <laughs> See, I think I would I would be entirely repelled by that person. Oh, wow. Well, you're apparently not a raging narcissist. <laughs> Congratulations, you get a prize. I'm just Midwestern is really the problem. No, uh, no I'm, I'm totally joking. Like, I married someone so unlike me that like enhances me in all the ways that I needed and vice versa. Uh, no, I would not want to hang out with me. Uh, but I think that's where like the fear of the doppelganger comes from because it's it, it shines a light on just how shaky are or how many how many like how many lies you have to tell yourself just to hold on to your own sense of identity, like how false it actually is. Yeah. Yep. And that, that all get, and the, the sad thing is like all of those signs are like kind of right in front of John. And like, he could have, like if he just interpreted them in, in some, some, you know, uh, self-aware way, so much tragedy could be avoided in this movie. Well, that's, but, the, uh, that's sort of the Greek tragedy behind all this, which is yeah. a bit of a Greek tragedy because the ending is inevitable. Like, it's impossible. He can't. Like, there is no way that he could have stopped this. And it goes, like, of course, with the, the function of him being, you know, having psychic premonitions and stuff, so it has to happen. But even just on the, the more grounded version of it, which I think it ties to it more thematically about, like, you know, us human beings who aren't psychic, it's like, He's incapable. Like no one would have been able to to stop that because it would have completely shattered his sense of self. And no one's willing to do that shit. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, man, uh, speaking of Greek tragedy or, you know, a, a, a more modern representation of the same type of Greek tragedy. Uh, Don't Look Now is like very Shakespearean specifically. Mm -hmm. I think specifically 
there's a lot of Macbeth in this. And I, I it's something that I can never really picked up on the first time I watched it, but now I, I did. There's so much of it. Like there's the, the weird sisters who kind of give, who kind of shine a light on another character's psychic abilities. That character in Macbeth with psychic abilities deals with the loss of their child. And then, uh, sort of self-fulfills a prophecy that is their own undoing. Uh, there's a lot in Macbeth about like the color red, like the blood kind of being uh, ever present and driving characters mad. There's uh, well, I guess a different Shakespearean play definitely makes Venice very sinister. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, there's, this is also like quite Shakespearean, which is, you know, not really surprising. Like a bunch, bunch of Brits, make a movie about self-fulfilling fra- prophecy and like a, a cacophony of, of uh, fait accompli, uh, you know, all kind of bending onto each other that like, you know, Shakespeare is going to come up, but I think it needs to be said. And uh, I gotta, I gotta really just like publicly chide you a little bit. It's, it's weird that you haven't read, read much Shakespeare or seen much Shakespeare. Yeah, and that's, that is, that is, it, it's almost unfathomable. Like it's such like a, I mean, talk about like hey, you haven't watched Twin Peaks. Yeah, okay, and and I will admit that that's a big gap. It's not as big of a gap as, say, as a well-read person having not read Hamlet. I was about to say it's funny that I compare like so for for what he's uh, bullying me about uh, justifiably. So the only book or Shakespeare book I've read or play right. that I've read is Romeo and Juliet that I had to read in high school. I've only seen one film adaptation, direct film adaptation of a Shakespeare play, and that's The Tragedy of Macbeth that came out a few years ago. I mean, of course, I've seen like uh, Kurosawa films, which have a lot of, uh, they're essentially adaptations of uh, Shakespeare plays, but I haven't seen any direct ones. And Hamlet's definitely the big one, and I deserve to be shamed. And it's also doubly funny that I compare it's like, whoa, I haven't read any ha- uh, Shakespeare. Well, you haven't seen Twin Peaks. So that's like the same, <laughs> man. Ha- Hamlet's a good read, though. Like, uh, it's it's interesting because really, what's usually the case with Shakespeare is like they're not plays; they're not really meant to be read. They're meant to be performed, and like you know, there's certain you know facets of them that really only come through in performance um, or in you know direction and that sort of thing. But Hamlet's the exception, where like Hamlet is a damn good read. Mm like all on its own, like granted seeing like a really amazing actor play Hamlet live is amazing, but actually just on the page, Hamlet is fucking excellent. Well, and that's, I would recommend it. That's kind of what's been holding me back a lot of times with uh, reading the plays where I, I don't know why I just haven't jumped right into the film ad- adaptation for especially Hamlet. I cannot tell you how much commentary I've read on Hamlet, how many adaptations I've read about Hamlet, how many things I've like, I've consumed that is in conversation with Hamlet. So it's like, by the time I read the source material, it's going to be one of those things that's like, oh, I've like, I know all this. Like, I know about the main characters. I know where it's all going, which is fine. Like, I really do need this. I'm not saying I'm not going to do it and that I'm excused from it, but that's like kind of been the reason why it's never been front and center for me to finally dig into. Sure, but but even just the the the, the style of it, like just its form is is very impressive. Mm-hmm. And like, no, I mean, I just. You know, even ignoring how like seminal it is and how 
you know, basically every page of, of the play has something that's been endlessly quoted by other things. It's still impressive prose. Like there's no way around it. Like newsflash, Hamlet is really good, but like, man, uh, I strongly just suggest you like read it at some point. I know, I know, I really need to. I so, uh, so let, that'll be another reason why we have to get a Patreon so I can buy Hamlet, the five dollar <laughs> book. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, hey, Dan, tell me about Catholicism and don't look now. Oh man. Uh, so as someone that is constantly, I get people who think I'm Catholic all the time. I'm just from an Irish family of one of six and from Chicago and behave like a Catholic person. So I get why people think I'm Catholic. Um, but the big theme of Catholicism here, especially when you have two, I would say like very Western European characters or Protestant characters. Well, it's actually, it's funny that in the story, it's not clear if John's American or English, but in the film, it's very clear from his accent that he's American. Um, but basically two people from more Protestant countries are in Italy, perhaps the most Catholic country, or at least the origins of Catholicism. Um, and they're coming in to restore Catholic churches. That's what uh, John's very interested in. I don't think they ever talk about John's religion specifically. They have that scene with Laura where she kisses the ring of the priest and like says, like he asks if she's like religious or, or Catholic. And she's kind of like, uh, sure which I thought was kind of a good bit of comedy, but like, it's not really clear where they stand. I would say John probably is more of a skeptic when it comes to religion, but he seems like someone who just like really appreciates the tradition and the art tradition of it all. And so it's fitting with the whole theme of like, it's John's job to restore ancient churches in a dying city that's going to sink into the ground. Uh, and bring nothing new into the world, bring nothing to kind of advance the ball of culture or art or anything like that. He's just trying to constantly scaffold up what's sinking and what's falling and what's inevitable, like what's constantly decaying and uh, basically like pretending that it's not, um, which maybe that's kind of like John's character, guys. I don't know. Oh, could be, could be just a bit, um, just kind of painting over the grief kind of painting over the, the decay. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like what religion is, <laughs> is a bunch of people who are afraid of what the finality of death, trying to their hardest to just will, will it into being that death isn't the end. Well, actually that's interesting. Cause as, as you were saying that, I, th I thought you were going to actually say the opposite, uh, which kind of how I, where I accidentally led the question where, I would say the the Catholic response would be much more well because of you know their their religious dogmas and stuff like in the worldview is much more comfortable with death, much more um, okay with the afterlife because you know they got they believe in like you know the resurrection and all that stuff and um, and John seems so hyper focused not on the spiritual aspect of the art that he's restoring or what's like what it's doing for the souls of people who are participating in this religion, in this church. He, he seems very interested in the technique, in the science, in, in like the very material things about this art or like, yeah, the history or all, all, uh, all the cultural significance of it, but it's completely divorced from the spiritual significance of this art. I just don't get that. That's what he's all that interested in. 
where like the, you know the catholic priests who are obviously the people that are, employ him and that are having him restore it like for them first and foremost it's the the spiritual power of this art and what it reminds congregations about and what it, it brings up in them and and creates this uh um not necessarily momentum mori, but this uh, this disposition towards death that um, the Catholic faith faith has, that I would argue, is at least probably more comfortable with death than John was. Oh yeah, well of course. Like I mean, th- and this is a good lead into just us talking about the believers versus the skeptics in this movie. And like, yeah, I mean, it, you know, just on its face, like John views death as final. You know, like, like, you know, veering into, like, again, a, a, a point in the movie where uh, Donald Sutherland is sort of void of, uh, devoid of um, vanity, where it's like, Christine is dead, 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 dead. 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 Like, just kind of like, you like, kind of like, you know, he's like a child in that moment. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, in contrast, Laura is willing to believe in an afterlife or, or maybe does literally believe in an afterlife. And uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's just like, yeah, it is odd that John who is clearly not spiritual, not religious, doesn't appear to believe in an afterlife uh, is the restorer of churches where, where his, uh, his wife, Laura, like we, we know nothing about her career, her, her interests, but we do know that she is, probably a little bit more spiritual than he is. Like she's kind of venerating the priest. She's willing to believe in um, the psychic powers. She's willing to, to hear out the, the, the German ladies, like pretty classic dichotomy of the, the skeptic and the believer that's explored really well kind of all throughout the Western canon. And in this movie, you made a comment that um, this movie is kind of very gendered in its believer versus skeptic do you do you think that that's um sort of a stereotype that that women are more spiritual or more susceptible to believe in metaphysics in the afterlife compared to men i think at least if you narrow it in on the couple because it it immediately falls apart if you break it out to the whole story because you know all the, the the lead catholic characters are all men um but i think yeah, it's like John's like kind of dogged masculine uh, desire to like have control of, like mentally have control of everything, rationalize everything, put everything in this in these boxes that he can explain and understand. Where, um, which is funny because he's literally, at least within the text of the film, he's literally a psychic. So like that that breaks his own understanding of how he can do things. So that adds to the tragedy where because of his demeanor and because of uh, the masculinity within, within his character, like he can't open himself up to this idea that maybe there is something beyond his his sense of ra- sense of Western rationality that can then yeah. kind of circle that square of these, these what he perceives as memories and these weird intuitions coming into him where at yeah. least Laura seems more open to the idea. And I mean, it's, it's a horror trope that goes back or that, that can be cited over and over again about the skeptic versus the believer. And it does tend to have a gender dynamic to it. I mean, hereditary is another good example of that. Um, and I don't, 
it, it, it's an interesting way to play it off. And I think Rogue isn't being reductive with it. I don't think he's saying like, well, the ladies are spiritual and the men are, you know, uh, of the world and stuff like that. I think he's he's presenting that as like th- this was a particular way that these two people were socialized and it has these consequences on their characters in these stories. Yeah, well, I mean, that is the ultimate tragedy is that he has this gift of of sec- the second side or clairvoyance and uh, he, he refuses to indulge in it because that's not rational and yeah. leads to the absolute destruction of his mind, body, and soul. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's, uh, there's, I guess like even just beyond, um, storytelling or kind of these, these kind of physical versus metaphysical conversations. Like there is definitely like a, a harmful stereotype of like, you know, men are the reasonable ones and women are the emotional ones. And like mm-hmm. that might be kind of an extension of, of those stereotypes or those biases in this movie. But um, I really, uh, I really think of uh, like uh, the ultimate um, contradiction on that is the X-Files where, uh, where, oh, like, yeah, where, yeah. where Mulder is the, is the believer and Scully is the skeptic. And uh I don't know. At the same time, they kind of like also that those two characters kind of embody like the opposite sort of like Mulder kind of tends to embody a lot of feminine characteristics and Scully does actually tend to embody a lot of male characteristics. So maybe that actually does kind of also kind of kind of belie the the, that stereotype of the, the feminine being the believer and the masculine being the skeptic. Well, what I think it's important, at least within Laura's character, is at least within the schema that she's working in, she is acting rationally. Like, oh, yeah. all, all the information given to her and what she has to work with, it's a reasonable conclusion to make. And it, to an extent, it's uh, John's dogmatic... He's the, he's the dogmatic one between the two of them. This, this person who's so rational and probably sees himself as a free thinker of sorts um, is dogmatically opposed to what is... Uh, Laura essentially just offering a hypothesis and it being rejected outright because it just doesn't fit into his worldview is, I would argue, a more irrational way of approaching it. Yeah, no, very true. And but but we do we also do not find out if yeah. the lady actually was seeing Christine right. or not. Um, and in fact, like the, t- the at the end, he's almost kind of punished for potentially believing that Christine is actually running around. Mm, so yeah. it, it's a little bit of a contradiction because uh, on the one hand, he is punished for not um, acting upon his premonitions. But at the same time, he is kind of punished for maybe letting himself believe a little bit at the end. Well, it could be a too little too late kind of uh yeah, that, that is kind of the that is kind of the way I see it. Yeah. Like if you really looked at the signs, um, like uh, more objectively, just kind of through his his second sight, he would he would know that who he was seeing was the murderer, right? And you know the signs were actually all over the film too in the background. Like you keep seeing that sign, or like they keep talking about a murder. It's not really the main point of the film, and then you see like signs in the background, literal signs in the background that's just like. Venice is in danger. Watch out. There's a murderer loose. So like, yeah, when danger someone... is in that red color. 
Yeah, yeah. And like when, you know, you just see a mysterious stranger running, like when you know there's a murderer out and someone's running around at night, like that should be something you don't run towards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he knows that now. <laughs> okay. Speaking of knowing things now and looking at things now, it's kind of, it's the, it's in the title. Like don't don't see the signs. Like don't uh, don't pay attention to your premonitions. Like don't see the 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 world around you uh, in a way that that contradicts your worldview. Don't look now. Um, h- how else does the themes of like sight and seeing and and eyes kind of play into the style and substance of this movie? Yeah, and and I forget if this is in the text in the film, but it was in the novella too, or one of the opening pages is uh them the, the opening scene in the the novella is them at the, the the cafe or the bistro or whatever and they see the the two uh elderly women or middle-aged women i don't know how old they're technically supposed to be um but he says like don't look now but we're being watched right now these ladies are freaking me out which i always kind of yeah. like it when uh people say the title of a movie or a book in the story but um yeah it's the very 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 first words of the story is yeah. it literally the first don't, words okay it's um, don't look don't look now but that lady's trying to hypnotize me oh yeah 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 um and yeah so speaking of sight like the main the functional antagonist of the story is a blind woman someone who cannot see but yet has a second sight and this film really dabbles in the, like in its form, dabbles in the limits of sight and the limits of the cinematic form where it's like, just like how uh, a frame that you're looking at has edges and borders and you can't see beyond them and you're only being shown time in this seemingly linear fashion. You can't literally shove two moments at the same time and have them have equal weight. Um, the same thing is with our eyeballs. Like I can only see one vantage point right now. Like I have no idea what behind me. Well, I have a camera so I can see behind me, but like, I can't, uh, I can only see from one vantage point. And that also works like from the literal standpoint of my eyeballs, seeing things from an ideological standpoint, I can only see things from a limited perspective of the way I was particularly raised and the lessons I learned and the worldviews I gained. Um, through that and you you see this on full display pretty much with all the characters and all their sort of clashes of ideas uh and people uh, coming over to other ideas people rejecting other ideas and ways of viewpoints literal like people seeing things differently where like john you know sees things uh from the future that are popping up which seemingly right in the present at the same time um so i think the idea of sight is crucial to understanding this film and it being it, it's one of those films i think far outstrips the text that it came from or the book that it came from because this is such a a film that deals with the idea of sight what it can do and more importantly what it can't do Oof. beautifully said beautifully perceived you saw it you i, did I see saw it. it you did see it um, actually, funnily, uh, with my viewing of it, that you saying, hey, don't fucking cut this into two pieces, that would have been a different way of seeing this movie. Ooh, well, maybe I ought to try it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know, man. I, th- I feel like there's so, like, the ending really, like, hits a certain way because we've experienced it in, like, a you know, uh, in, in the exact fashion with like the exact amount of 
kind of runway towards it, the, the exact amount of foreshadowing that's fresh in our minds. Like I, I can't imagine it being quite as powerful that way, but who knows? That's just my, my own subjective experience. Uh, I, I don't have the gift of second sight. Yeah, you forced I, your way of seeing on me for this movie. Maybe I would have come in with an entirely off-the-wall, different opinion. That would have been very insightful. But now we're we're deprived of that. The world is, is deprived show. of that. This is this is a show about forcing our point of view on the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Well, I think that's about it for Don't Look Now. Uh man, I've been dreading this for the entire conversation is what to recommend and you mm. gave voice to this already is like god this movie's so freaking influential like how do we even go about it i i don't know i'm, I'm still kind of personally at a loss other than all of the movies i've already mentioned like memento and schindler's list and hereditary and uh uh we need to talk about kevin in bruges uh you know see all of those if you don't like or i mean if you do like don't look now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I got two. One I already spoiled to you earlier, but now I've been keeping in my back pocket for you, the dear listener. Um, It's another film that employs nonlinear timelines, but it does an excellent job of hiding that fact until there's a reveal towards the end with a big super cut where you finally like everything clicks into place. And for me personally, probably just because I'm a more you know, I, I'm a more modern viewer, so like I'm just more attuned to uh, that bag of tricks being done in a way that is more contemporary to me. It worked a lot. It landed a lot fucking harder for me. And it's uh, 2016's Arrival does uh, the same thing that Don't Look Now is doing. And it does it like I, if you've seen Arrival, spoilers for Arrival, so just skip ahead. Um, when there is that scene when you realize that Amy Adams' character by learning this new language is now sort of unstuck in time and can see uh, things across different times. And she's actually been flash forwarding the, or you've been seeing flash forwards of her child dying instead of flashbacks the whole time. Like that hits like a fucking ton of bricks. And it's very similar to what don't look now is there's no way Villeneuve wasn't pulling from that when he, uh, when he was de- essentially designing the form for Arrival. Actually, it really makes me... I think Arrival is based off a short story as well. I would really love to check that out and see how the the story operates on that same level. Um, yeah, Jared, do you have... Before I do my older-than-me film, do you have any recommendations that you can throw out? Or are yeah. you just at a loss? Uh, I'm at a loss other than just kind of using this to like maybe tie into... A conversation that you know we've, we have in a different episode and you know what we'll, i i think you know we'll 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 release these two episodes kind of one after the other but um the original way to experience mm. don't look now was to see it all in one sitting alongside the wicker man <laughs> um the wicker man uh was uh the the executive who was kind of behind the distribution of the wicker man didn't have a lot of faith in it and and actually just kind of put it as the B movie alongside Don't Look Now. So at the time, in you know, in England, it was in the fashion to, you know, you have the main event and then you have the kind of shitty movie that goes along with the main event. And the, these two movies were released together where Don't Look Now is like this opus, you know, very uh, prestigious, you know, it's going to be highly critically acclaimed just you know wonderful movie and then the wicker man was like the afterthought like and here's the wicker man and yeah it's kind of weird now because the wicker man is fucking excellent and uh 
but so yeah, I guess if you wanted to get as close to the experience of you know London 1973 evening of uh, of horror films, yeah, The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now were released simultaneously, and man how amazing would that have been to not know a damn thing about either of those movies and just see them all in one, like, you know, four hour sitting. Oh, I know. Like bigger than Barbenheimer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not as lengthy, but um, yeah. I mean, just in retrospect, obviously two enduring, enduring classics. Um, but yeah, if you haven't seen the wicker man and you're going to watch, don't look now, watch them side by side or you know not, not side by side but one after the other <laughs> don't watch them simultaneously that could which, be very confusing oh man um which yeah i would comment further on that but uh our comments are immortalized that will probably be published in the near future or probably along with this um my my one for before i was born but like i had said right now actually i checked this one so i was born in october of 92 this came out before october of 92 it came out in 92 but before october um and yeah that, that was kind of the, the big problem i had is it kind of had to come out after don't look now because don't look now is so foundational and it's something that we actually have been talking about it's twin peaks fire walk with me uh it's just it, it plays with a lot of similar cinematic language and it's very firmly uh, i've never experienced a horror film that has so closely put me in the shoes of the person who's experiencing the horror before. And I will keep it at that because you have seen no Twin Peaks. Excellent. Well, I think that does it for today's episode. For Concessions, I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Dovevo perderti senza difesa.